0: Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On the day after the 50th anniversary of the first 9-11, I have Pat TDS to talk about the implications, as well as the brutal Pinochet neo-fascist regime in Chile, and later we discuss the seeds of the American 9-11. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. Solidarity forever. PDS Pat of the Trickle Down Socialism Podcast. Welcome, sir. Part two.
1: Hey, it's great to be back. It's uh, fun kind of keeping up with your show, actually, between appearances. Now, it's been like a month since the last time I was on. Uh, you've had some exciting guests, and you, you do a great job the way you break down uh, topics and into really good questions. So, keep up the good work, man.
0: So, let's talk about your podcast. Let's talk about your past life, the Trickle Down uh socialism podcast is it now defunct is it done are you moving on to another project and why don't you talk about that new project
1: yeah so trickle down socialism was a lot of fun and i learned a whole lot i had a a great team one of my coworkers in boston public schools is kind of a really outgoing guy and so he his personality helped kind of bring this show into what it became But it was um, very, very interview based. So I interviewed a lot of people, including like Rachel Rollins, who went on to become U.S. attorney, Um, you know, a number of uh, prospective politicians, some were active politicians and some pretty interesting authors like Kurt Anderson, who wrote uh, uh, Evil Geniuses, a really interesting book about kind of the corporate capture of the American legislature. But um, You know, we kind of ran into a situation where all three of us uh, got a little too busy with other stuff in our lives. And uh, so I kind of put down podcasting for a little bit. And now I'm working together with the producer of TDS and another friend I've made uh, on leftist Twitter to kind of get another show started. It'll be interview based, uh, discussion based, kind of uh, broken into segments and focusing on specific policy, either here in the U.S., or abroad, that was enacted and kind of uh, dreamed up by leftists, and that has like actually improved the quality of life for a large portion of the population. Um, So that's kind of, we're going to focus on the concept uh, that Marx talked about saying that the, the riddle's been solved, right? Like we understand where the greed comes from and how the greed's rewarded by capitalism, but the riddle of collective ownership right and collective well-being has already been solved and so we kind of just need to return to those roots of of communal sharing and uh communal-minded planning uh whether that's done in the syndical realm you know kind of like in a county-sized area um which i think makes a lot of sense for the coming climate change um or if that happens on the state level uh you know that is uh, something that I am a fan of as opposed to corporate-driven uh, decision-making, cor- corporate-driven laws, and uh, corporate corporate power, basically, basically, is what we live under.
0: So I'm doing a solo podcast right now on the banking system, uh, and it's kind of hard even to get information. Um, you read stuff on the Federal Reserve, on how it was founded, why it was founded. Uh, and yet you don't hear anything about the fact that I think something like five or six banking insiders secretly went to Jekyll Island, Georgia um, with a uh, a um, state senator or I'm sorry, a federal senator, mm-hmm. uh, a U.S. senator who was the chairman of uh, the banking committee. And mm-hmm. they basically wrote this legisla- uh, legislation in secrecy. Um, and kept it secret from the public, kept it secret from the media. Um, When they were traveling to Jekyll Island, I think this is in, I want to say, 1913, something, uh, early 1900s, though. Uh, I believe it was right around World War uh, I. I think um, Woodrow Wilson was in office. Uh, But these people didn't even imagine. This is like regulatory capture at its finest. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't necessarily even uh, regulatory capture, it was uh essentially writing the entire banking legislation um mm-hmm. and and with with the intention of you know private, privatization and self-interest uh mm-hmm. basically creating a banking cartel uh, allowing a private um power center of bankers um uh essentially issue us currency in the federal reserve system which is privately uh i guess you know privately owned um i'm not even sure it's kind of complicated the more you dig into it it's kind of it's kind of complicated but it uh, it operates outside of u.s congress u.s congress does not um, have any influence uh these private banks can and typically they're um the members are hand-picked um you know high members of you know chase bank jp morgan all those sorts of Um, you know, Citigroup, uh, Jamie Dimon, I think, you know, sits on these committees, these billionaire bankers and, and that kind of stuff. And these are, um, these are unaccountable positions where people are handpicked. And these are the people chosen. This banking cartel um, remains in power uh, hundreds of years later, no changes to the banking system. I mean, minor um, regulations. And um, some of the some of the uh, videos and information I'm watching on this regulatory capture, um, you know, uh, the American people are a sucker for reforms. So that's one of the ways that they uh, used to kind of introduce this new banking system that was written by the cartels and the big banks and the, um, you know, essentially the robber barons at the turn of the century. All they had to do was just call it a reform. Uh, They didn't tell about how it was, uh, how it came together and, and complete secrecy. Um, and you know again this this power center um remains, so the entire banking system uh with regulatory capture and essentially um you know a private cartel um that have complete power over the issuing of currency so uh, a, a lot about, uh, I said this on a little, another podcast, uh, history, I think this is Mark Twain, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Um, quite often, history rhymes, and this kind of stuff happens every single day. So let's go back to the, um, the banking crisis uh, in 2009, when the same people that crashed the economy... Uh, was chosen by the Obama administration to rebuild the uh, to rebuild the banking system and to rebuild the economy. So essentially, the people that crashed the economy were the same people chosen to rebuild it. Uh, and Wall Street, of course, was um, you know handsomely rewarded as they were the, pretty much the financiers of the Obama campaign. And after uh, the banking crisis, the banks came bigger, uh, and more powerful and richer than ever. And, um, you know, the, the recessions happen every seven or so years. Um, and they're all worse than the last. And it's just kind of like we're putting a bandaid on it. So what do you think about all that stuff? Regulatory capture, and the seediness, the nepotism, the crony capitalism that goes on within our system. I, I didn't even plan on, we had a pre-call, I'm um, just doing this off the whim, but as my research is kind of triggered me, I'm um, talking about regulatory capture, my research for my upcoming solo pod, that uh, really triggered me in terms of how this stuff gets done behind closed doors, the seediness to it, the secrecy. In um, the agenda that the you know these uh i guess a small sector of the one percent um you know that what their intentions are they want to control everything
1: oh, I mean they do, so that 's the the key to that piece that you mentioned so you you brought up a really good point and a very you know important kind of precedent set uh in the way that the federal reserve was created, and I would suggest for your solo pod that if you do want some input from a guest, my co-host, C-Money, is an absolute whiz at explaining stuff like that. Um, So he might be a good person to consult with or potentially have on that show. But I want to just make it clear that that kind of corporate capture is now the norm, right? And, um, you know, groups like ALEC, right? So American Legislative Executive Committee is basically a group of corporations that write that write, word for word, letter for letter, the laws, and hand them to state letters, legislators. And you know, this is all legal because of uh, our campaign finance laws and other laws that just make you shake your head, because they just scream, legalized corruption, right? So it's like the concept of corporations writing laws, word for word, that get signed into law as written sometimes even without that, you know, the logo of ALEC edited out, you know, accidentally left in. That's the kind of stuff that's getting on on the docket on these state legislatures. Like, this is not anything like a democracy. And it's it's really important that folks understand that.
0: What's the role for corporations and your ideal society? Do they have a role? Um, I've talked to a lot of different guests. I would like to see... Corporations, these private tyrannies, abolished these unaccountable hierarchies, um, putting some above others, boards of directors, layers of management, mm-hmm. CEOs, all that kind of stuff. So, I would like to not necessarily abolish them, but pub- publicly overtake them and organize them democratically, um, worker-owned, worker-controlled. What say you? Oh,
1: I I shop um, whenever I have a choice. I choose the employee owned company as often as possible. So I think that is also a part of our future, right? I think as long as not only are they employee owned but those workers if possible are part of a larger union that is my ideal and that is the way forward. That is the, the incremental way forward that we that workers are fighting for on a daily basis today. So and you talk I- good good no, I mean, I just think that, like, it it only makes sense, right? So, like, when you have employee ownership, like, for instance, my seeds for my garden, I get them from Johnny's Seed Company in Maine. It was started by this one person, but over the last, like, 15 years, he's transitioned the company into 100% employee ownership. So that means that, you know, any raising and valuation of that company is shared by every member of that company. And any decision... You know employee owned and operated is an important feature that you need to look for as well where that is like you said democratically organized uh workplaces right so not only are they sharing in the profits of the company and sharing in the risk of the company but they're also sharing in the decision making uh process through democratic processes and that's just like that makes sense and the more the more workers in our society that join uh employee ownership like this uh, and see it firsthand. the more people are gonna be swayed to the concepts that you know are are so fundamental for leftist theory, whether you are talking about anarchism um or communism or socialism of any stripe.
0: So I gave you like fourteen points what we're like gonna <laughs> talk about tonight. I haven't even gotten near any of them yet, have we? <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, it's fine. You know, that's kind of it's like how our conversation. It's how I our conversation
0: I want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to have no <laughs> clue where I'm going to go with it. No clue I'm going to ask you. That's what I want as a host. That's exactly what I want. I'm an anarchist, and true to form, I'm, I'm going to leave you on your toes the whole time. <laughs> I'm so uh,
1: just going to throw some bombs in there, <laughs> just. To-
0: <laughs> See what happens. I might hit that no, head like, back tomorrow. It's I like good, it. Uh, good way to let out some frustration and some steam. I saw yeah. a good meme. Uh, every, so it was something like, uh, yeah, every morning a uh, someone on the team sends out a random email to, to uh, pep everyone up. It was like a meme or something like that. And they're like, here's one from such and such. She says, every morning I wake up furious to be laboring under capitalism. Boy, did that i have some uh, uh, higher-ups second-guessing some stuff there. (laughs) Yeah. I wake up furious to be laboring under capitalism every morning. What about you?
1: No, I saw a fantastic meme just before I came on the show that was a a picture. uh, One of my friends in the South works for a construction company that's – they're trans, and they make that public so that the people in the area who don't feel comfortable with, like, Trump supporters doing the work on their house – they hire her or oh, okay. they hire this person's company, but they, they showed artwork from one of their um, clients houses. And it was just a beautiful oil painting of a chase bank completely on fire, just like <laughs> burning to the ground.
0: Like, oh wow, it's just it was pretty incredible. So we talked, you talked a little bit about like anarchism, communism. I've thought about this idea. Uh, I read a lot of Chomsky as we've talked about, yeah. Um, he doesn't really like to get too into the weeds of designing a you know, society or a world government, because some of the stuff we're talking about is theory, and we are so far away from it, it's not even funny. But I do like to dabble in these ideas as a philosopher. What do you think about the ideal... Government. I mean, I'm an anarcho-syndicalist, so I want a society structured around a democratically organized workplace, maybe federation state, something like that, smaller scale, not this big centralized um, power center like the Soviet Union. Um, what about – so we talked a little bit about corporations. We're not in favor of them. We're not in favor of hierarchy or systems of domination. So what about world government? I had a, a PhD on. We talked a little bit about it. I mean, there has to be probably – Authority centers and power centers. There are going to be authority centers and power centers within society. Uh, I want. I want a society in the long run. You know, I hope these nation states ultimately dissolve, as, as I think kind of Mark uh as well. Um, but what do you see for like a ideal world government? I certainly don't want a one state, all powerful new world order type government like a 1984 style. I definitely don't want that. What do you think about, like, um, supra-governmental, you know, uh, institutions like the European Union? Like, maybe we all kind of have our continental government, and then maybe we all come together and vote on some issues. Uh, As long as we have real working-class representation and real Mm -hmm. democracy, I'm in favor of it. Um, Certainly not a one-world, essentially uh, powerful, authoritarian state. Have you thought about that in the long, in the long view and what's your kind of ideal formation for society?
1: Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. And I mean, I mean, fundamentally, I think borders are stupid, right? I think there's like man-made decided by the rich, decided by the powerful to further the interests of the rich and to further the interests of the powerful. Right. So it is not, uh, that's not legitimate, Right. Um, you know, and, I, and I'm always for world governance if it's entered into without some type of arrangement, which is like you know our, the U.S. Uh, imagination of what that world governance looks like is the U.S. and then the rest of the world, right? No, At, I want these uh, nation on,
0: states to dissolve. No, I, I have a so, Chomsky book. Right. It's called Internationalism or Extinction. Yeah, I like the me, idea of that. No borders, kind of what you were saying.
1: No, so I, oh, 100%. That's the goal. But, like, the concept the U.S. has is the U.S. has a hegemonic state that really dictates all major decisions and controls the fiat currency, right? So, like, that's the way the U.S. sees world governance. I see world governance if it's going to work as each of those nations enter into it as equals and don't see one as superior to another. Um, That would be, you know, the non-hierarchical way of joining as a nation, as as a world, like, which should happen, right? Like, we're facing an existential crisis. Um, And, you know, there's nothing, there would, nothing would make more sense than for all the nations to enter into conversations on how best to administer climate justice how best to administer, you know, how to, how to wage peace, like aggressively wage peace as I brought up last time I was on the show. Like, like this is, this is the only thing that really makes sense for the survival of our species. Uh, So like, it, it just makes sense. And it's unfortunate that there are still so many who feel like that, you know, some nations should be superior to others.
0: Yeah, that definitely seems how the world runs. You know, force kind of governs the world. Uh, The world operates by force. I wrote this down in some of my notes. I think it was 1984, where the United States government was sanctioned. 1986, excuse me. uh, The world court versus Nicaragua. uh, I'm sorry, in the world court, Nicaragua versus the United States, where the world court condemned the U.S. for unlawful use of force, essentially international terrorism. Uh, and, you know, obviously what the um, you know, United States did in Iraq twice, Afghanistan and what Russia did in Afghanistan and now Ukraine, typically the world, the way the world works, um, force is very effective. Uh, terrorism is very effective. Um, and these, this is typically how, um, you know, this is typically how, I guess, uh, enforcement, authority, um, power is typically how you amass it. So let's kind of transition. Um, yesterday was 9-11. Um, we're kind of getting into terrorism. Let me read you. I took this from the Army manual today, the Army handbook, um, Army training manual. Uh, the terrorologists, all of them working for the State Department, uh, the NSA, the CIA. Um, but uh, here's right out of the Army uh, manual. Uh, I think it was the manual was entitled Terrorism in the 21st Century. Terrorism. There's a direct definition uh, by the U.S. government and the U.S. military. The calculated use of unlawful force or threat of unlawful violence to inculcate fear intended to coerce or intimidate, intimidate governments or societies in the pursuit of goals that are generally political, religious, or ideological. And then my next point would be, by this definition, the United States is the leading earth state
1: in the world what do you think about that no i mean i i think any honest look at things would say just that right so um in order to further the interests of corporations we've we've meddled in the politics of just about every nation in latin america um and you know it just it it strikes me as just so shameful and so hypocritical of us as a nation and um, to then be, you know, hard on immigrants coming from, uh, you know, Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua and, you know, immigrants from countries that we Honduras. Right. So Honduras, we 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 pushed a, a, you know, a coup just to further the interests of United Fruit Company. That's it. We just wanted to look out for one enormous corporation. So we're furthering the interest of one person, really, one CEO or the stakeholders or the board of directors. Um, and we're, we're toppling nations in order to do that. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's mind boggling.
0: I'm not too familiar. What happened with the United Fruit Company?
1: Well, so basically the United Fruit Company was established by uh, actually not even an an American-born citizen. It was someone from Eastern Europe who had come to the U.S., uh, spent 10 years as a really successful uh, businessman in uh, the U.S. and then was like, hold on. Basically what they did was they saw these uh, bananas being dumped out uh, when they were overripe. And this person was just like, wow, this is like really good fruit it doesn't come to the South of the U S. So let me just sell this stuff. And he got, he made just tons of money. Cause it was a brilliant idea. Um, and then he moved down, he bought 15,000 acres in uh, Honduras, which was ideal uh, land for growing bananas. Um, which, you know, weren't native to Honduras and uh, launched a gigantic banana plantation. And then got to the point where he was like, I, you know, this government feels like it might put too much pressure on me. So let me just go ahead and, you know, get the U.S. to to back the coup, you know, and he, he spent, you know, $5,000 of his own money that was then refunded by the U.S. government, you know, as thanks for his efforts in, uh, you know, staging the coup. Basically, they found someone who was the suitable like puppet president. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's just shocking. And it's something that's, it's not taught. When I was a history teacher, when I was teaching civics and stuff, I made sure to teach at least some of this so that students got a sense, you know, of the fact that, like, for instance, Fred Hampton's murder by by the FBI and the Chicago police, mainly for the fact that he united, you know, the Young Lords, a Puerto Rican gang uh, with a, a group of Appalachian whites uh, with, you know, his Black Panther Party of Chicago to create the Rainbow Coalition. It scared the absolute bejesus out of the U.S. government. And so they murdered him. He was 21 years old. Next to his pregnant girlfriend. Like, just horrible, horrible stuff.
0: Yeah, hundreds per- of gunshots. You're talking about the Fred Hampton murder. I believe hundreds of gunshots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so a de- a
1: defensive, It was basically a defensive reflexive bullet fire, fired by one of his guards. Like
0: One one bullet was fired at the, the, yeah. know, the security yeah. forces, the FBI, yeah. uh, aided by Chicago PD.
1: It's just sickening, right? It's just, it's um, it's too much, you know, when you take it and then you try to think about, like, I don't know about you, but growing up we were told we were made to stand and say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. And that, feels, that feels like indoctrination and it feels like it's being ignorant of the reality of, of what we have been as a nation.
0: What did you do for the Pledge of Allegiance? I think early on I kind of... I don't think I was ever into it. I think maybe first and second grade. I think maybe by fifth grade, I was just kind of standing there mumbling it. And I think high school, I just stood up, didn't even put my hand on my uh, heart. I never would consider myself a right-winger or Republican or even patriotic. I think I've always been an anarchist. I've always liked raging against the machine. I've always liked (laughs) raging against the machine, even though maybe when I was an adolescent, I really didn't know what they were raging against. Now I'm Mm -hmm. a little bit more familiar um, I've actually seen some interviews with Zach De La Roca and, um, Chomsky talking about NAFTA, mm-hmm. um, which were pretty good. Uh, they're, they're all well-informed The guys from rage, at least Tom and Zach. I haven't seen some of the other guys speak on politics as much. Um, but anyways, I don't know where we're going with this. I want to get into, um, nine 11 mm-hmm. and the first nine 11. Well, let's, before we do this, we've got a couple minutes here and then let's get into nine 11, the first nine 11 and, um, you know, maybe the implications with what happened in the United States when actually the guns were finally po- uh, pointed at us. We've been pointing the guns and using violence in the Middle East for uh, generations. And finally, 9-11-2001, it was actually in the United States that was targeted. But go- I want to go back to this, the way history is presented. And we got a lot of stuff to talk to. Of course, we're not going to get to all of it. None of the 14 points we've even brought up yet. What about objectivity, though, in teaching history? Do you believe in objectivity? Can you be Uh, Can you walk a middle ground? Um, How do you present history when you're teaching it? Um, I I quoted quoted this book, uh, Howard Zinn. You can't stay neutral on a moving train. So I don't even pretend to be neutral. I'm a a leftist. Uh, I'm a socialist anarchist. I I try to tell people um, my slant on things so that when when they listen to me talk, Um, There's no um, disguising it, you know, I'm honest about it, unlike the New York Times, who I just read this article, um, speaking of uh, completely, um, you know, unbiased, they just published an opinion piece um, in the New York Times that was um, very pro-Saudi Arabia, uh, an op-ed that was actually financed by a... Uh, This is on the Chomsky Forum on Reddit that I'm on, Uh, but it was a uh, pro-Saudi op-ed without disclosing the op-ed writers think tank is funded by Saudi Arabia, and basically the Biden administration is in a diplomatic push to normalize and codify security alliance with two of the world's um, worst human rights abusers, Saudi Arabia and Israel. So the New York Times tries to present itself as objective, which of course it is not, Uh, I do not pretend to be objective because, of course, I am not. What do you think of objectivity and the teaching of history?
1: You know, all these claims of uh, critical race theory being taught, you know, that's not what's happening because that is an academic theory. That is not something Not it's not an educational approach. It's not any part of any curriculum that at any lower grade levels but in honest that was a right wing history. actually
0: think tank i heard it was a right wing think tank invention critical race theory
1: it's it's really it's a distractor really right so like honest any honest discussion of us history is going to mention things like the fact that the uh, police in the united states were started either as a slave catcher societies uh, that caught runaway slaves from the south Uh, strike breakers, right? Like the Pinkerton gang and all those hired goons that really just killed immigrants, basically, who are standing up for their rights to be paid equal, you know, at least uh, livable wages um, and or just private protection for the ultra wealthy. That's how all of our police started in the U.S. So you can't necessarily reform organizations that were started in those ways. Right. Um, but honest discussion of our country mentions the fact that race played an enormous role, right? Race was invented as you know, by Europeans, but to justify the transatlantic slave trade, right? That was the reason that race was invented and pushed as a theory. It wasn't really a theory before that. It wasn't because there's no genetic, there's really no genetic difference between races. There's more genetic variation within a race than there is between races. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's important to have that discussion and also to teach history from a worker perspective whenever possible. Right. So like, um, a lot of history historically has been taught from the perspective of the ruler ruling class, the rulers in particular, um, and the victors and the ultra wealthy. Um, but whenever possible, like using Howard Zinn, um, you know, he wrote a people's history of the United States, which is fantastic. And then, um, a, a number of authors worked on uh, a young people's history. So just basically taking a lot of that history and breaking it down for more like a middle schooler or a freshman, sophomore in high school to read. Um, and that's fantastic as well, because it's not just the concept of teaching that race played a factor. It's an honest look at history when you look at the perspective of an individual as opposed, you know, in like a, a, a normal quote unquote, normal, a a commoner, a worker, a peasant, or, you know, someone who's not part of the ruling class or the priestly class in, you know, in the history of like the Catholic church, for instance. Um, It is like essential if you're going to understand a historical time period, a place that you look at the experience of the worker, of the individual, of the commoner. And, you know, that's where history really gets interesting for me, um, that and and where history has like nuance and and kind of disagreement and friction, that is really where I'm I'm most interested as a historian. Um, but it, you know, an honest look at history is a not is a look at the experience of many many individuals. You can't make up your mind about anything until you look at it from multiple multiple perspectives, and so that's you know that's that's looking at. Uh, the factor, the role that race has played in the U S and the the role that money and class um, to be honest, has played in the development, like even the U S revolution, right? Like the, the, the war of independence is not some grand scheme of actual democracy winning, right? It's, it's, it's the, the lateral move. It's the, you know, we were owned by a landlord class in England and now we're fighting. The the poor are fighting on behalf of the rich to make it so that they are now ruled by a U.S. landlord. Just a, a little change in, in nominally in the the person who holds the power, but it was not. It was not you know to the to the victors of the war. the, the those individuals who volunteered as soldiers, they did not enjoy the spoils of that war.
0: Yeah, uh, often. Uh, maybe always histories written by the victor which leads me to quote the late great uh comedian norm mcdonald uh it says here in this history book that luckily the good guys have won every single time what are the odds <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> i saw him live at the exactly. in pittsburgh r.i.p norm uh we miss you um i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and um you promoted Howard Zinn. He's a legend. He's one of my favorites. Chomsky uh, and Howard Zinn were my favorite uh, authors about um, U.S. history. I got right here um, a working class history. It's a good book. It's actually just kind of snippets uh, each day in history. It's pretty good. It's a light read. Um, it's not like a comprehensive story, uh, but it's good. Lots of lots. Of, it's a pretty thick book. Lots of good working class um, history in this book. Um, another one I like: uh, A People's History of the World. Um, by Chris Harmon. That's a good, thick book. It kind of goes back a lot. Uh, It goes back to basically um, ancient society and prehistory. Even talks a little bit about primitive communism. So I dig that um, book. It's a a really good one. I actually just ordered a couple. Um, I'm not going to say where I ordered these books from, uh, but I don't like this company. But they do have a lot of books, so unfortunately, I kind of have to go through them. <laughs> but I'm sure you have aware of what uh, company I'm referring to. Uh, this this guy's yeah. a great author. Um, recommended his books by um, Chomsky. Uh, the one is called "This is David Montgomery." He's a labor uh, historian and author. "The Fall of the House of Labor," and then I also have another one here, uh, also by David Montgomery: "Workers Control in America." So. Looking I'll look forward to getting those books in the mail very soon, uh, and hopefully I can talk about them maybe on a podcast that will come up. Um, but anyways, let's get back to what you were talking about. So the history, um, we really, I want to get back to 9-11 here, but uh, I can't not mention this, uh, the, the, the Revolutionary War. Um, part of the Revolutionary War and part of the reason that we have these crazed gun laws in the United States is because not only were we Defending ourselves or trying to free ourselves from Britain, uh, but we also needed guns, um, at least that's what their argument was, to exterminate uh, and eradicate the indigenous population who sided with Britain because Britain uh, actually, at least most of the natives did, not all of them, history is complex, um, society is complex. Uh, But, you know, Britain was actually putting limits on colonial expansion, like they weren't allowed to go past a certain frontier, weren't allowed to go to Canada. Um, The natives, the indigenous knew pretty well what would happen to them if the colonists won their independence, it would be over for them, you know, and it was, you know, probably less than 100 or so years. They were almost completely wiped out other than small pockets on uh, reservations, you know pocketed it out throughout the country. And of course, I don't even know how many times, um, the promises were broken between native tribes and the U S, um, government. But, um, you know, part, and then the other part with, with why there's such crazy gun laws here, the second amendment is because, um, the slaves outnumbered, um, The the mass, the slave masters in the South and and on the plantations and stuff. So that was some of the part of the reason um, not only to have for these crazy gun laws, not only defending ourselves or trying to free ourselves from Britain. I say that as an American, uh, but also, you know, eradication of the indigenous and defense from possible slave revolts in the South. So America was founded on violence. It's a very, very bloody Um, very very violent history it was a nascent empire an empire essentially uh, at inception and uh, again part of the reason for these phrased gun laws and the wild west I've read some stuff was actually a fictional representation that was created after the civil war in order to sell guns it's not really a uh, a real history it's not really something that actually happened this wild west and the sheriffs and all that kind of stuff it was just kind of a fictional um, you know Uh, representation in film and books, um, you know, to kind of make some romantic era that never happened to sell guns.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, The, the threat, quote unquote threat from the native population was really not, not very real. It was drummed up to, to, to sell guns, as you mentioned, and to just, you know, popularize the concept of having guns on the frontier Uh, There were certainly groups that fought back very well. um, But a a lot of times that was more of like, you know, honorable battle between, uh, you know, between armies, between groups who were kind of designed to fight, not, not civilians the way that the the white people killed native American populations. Um, You know, but you make a good point there. Um, The, the slave owning uh, population was incredibly paranoid as you would be, right. You can't, you can't do what they were doing and not have trouble sleeping sometimes. Right. You're needing some real stiff drinks to get to sleep at night. It's not, it's not right. And as much as they told themselves lies about making slaves, better people by introducing them to Christianity. And at least now they live in houses and at least now they know God and all this just horrendous, horrendous stuff. Um, You know, you have to also popularize the concept of owning a gun um, for your, quote unquote, protection. And every time there was a slave rebellion, like a Nat Turner situation that was trumpeted throughout the South to drum up fear, uh, to otherize black people and to justify violence against black people, Um, you know, violence that continued and continues to this day. Um, yeah, but absolutely uh, a big part of the reason that gun culture is so big in the U.S. is is those two pieces of of particularly American racism. Yeah.
0: And if you look at the political map, not much has changed since the Civil War. Um, we don't have a class-based party in the United States, unlike most other countries around the world. We have two business parties. We have a rural business party and we have a more inner city kind of uh you know, hoity-toity, um, bougie, neoliberal <laughs> business party uh, with a little bit nicer rhetoric, um, but essentially the same goals to enrich um, a certain sect of the population, a, a tiny um, fraction of the 1%. Um, I want to go here, though. Let's, let's go to 9-11. This is, we're recording this on September 12th. Um, a lot of people don't know, so we're talking about <laughs> some really ancient history. But let's go back to a little bit more modern times—the um, 50th anniversary um, of the uh, uh, Chilean coup, coup d'état, um, aided by the um, CIA, where the um, government um, at the time of Chile was overthrown, and a uh, a right-wing neo-fascist Dictatorship um, by uh, as an Augusto Pinochet uh, was installed with the help of uh, U.S. security forces, the CIA, um, essentially trained killers. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that uh, I think a lot of people, um, at least I did not heard about it until recently when I started kind of getting into my leftist um ...history now and and learning about this kind of stuff, but up until maybe a few years ago, I'd never heard about the first 9-11. So let me uh, allow Noam Chomsky, my favorite uh, maybe political philosopher and author, to sum it up here. Uh, Suppose that on 9-11, the planes had bombed the White House. Suppose they killed the president, established a military dictatorship, quickly killed thousands, tortured tens of thousands more, set up a major international terror center... That was carrying out assassinations, overthrowing governments all over the place, installing other dictatorships, and drove that country into one of the worst depressions in its history and had to call on the state to bail them out. Suppose that happened. Well, it did. On the first 9-11, 1973. Except we were responsible for it. So it happened. That's Allende's Chile. You can't imagine the media talking about this. Wonder why that wasn't taught? It's talking about objectivity, how come that wasn't taught in my history class when I was growing up in grade school? The first 9 9-11 in nineteen seventy three, I ended Chile.
1: No, he he has such a gift for summing those those events up and and drawing modern equivalents and making it you know painfully clear to the reader just what was going on in those instances. Right. So, um, the one thing that is a positive I will mention is my wife was recently reading to me from an NPR article, um, I think two days ago, uh, or maybe even yesterday on nine eleven about this event. Um, NPR was doing a, a very honest story about it. Um, you know, and in, in the I do appreciate some of the really good reporting from NPR. I just w- will always Me point too. out that they fall short, they fall short of of naming the culprit, you know, in a lot of situations that is capitalism, right? So, like, they just come right short of that because they have underwriters that they depend on for their, you know, uh, they for, get for the productions funding. they put, put together. Sure, yeah, I, right, I watch exactly. a lot of PBS
0: so, stuff, a lot, lots of good stuff, and there's always, you know thank in part by funding from some big bank or something like that. And you're like, uh oh, you know, obviously they're going to, they're going to tie a line here because they know where their bread's buttered, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the Koch brothers is a big contributor. So it's, it's, it's uh, you know, that's part of it, but I do appreciate the fact that they are being honest about it and maybe 50 years is enough time um, or whatever, but it is something that we need to know about. Right. So like I was lucky enough to have professors in college My one of my Spanish professors teaching us how to speak Spanish and write Spanish and read Spanish literature was from El Salvador um, and made no pains about talking about, you know, she pulled no punches in describing to us what uh, the U.S. government had done to her country um, and to all of her neighbors in Latin America. And, um, you know, she she just uh, she would go once a year to Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, and it is in Fort Benning, Georgia, that up until about, I think, like five years ago, they housed what was called the School of the Americas, and the School of the Americas was a training facility for paramilitary, you know, basically para-fascist forces <laughs> that were um, trained in their tactics by, their tactics of basically, you know, putting down popular rebellions, or breaking unions, or, overthrowing uh, a a democratically elected leader and government um, in favor of often fascist but just you know sometimes neoliberal but leaders who were going to be friendly to American businesses because the biggest fear from U.S. government perspective and U.S. government at at the time as as in now but more nakedly at the time in the early 1900s and into the 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 middle part of the 20th century were you know big titans of business maybe at the same time that they were in congress or in the senate or at least you know the cousin of somebody who was like a john d rockefeller type guy right so you know that's part of the reality but the idea that the US government was, you know, engaged in training these forces that did horrific things to the people of their countries uh, in the name of, uh, you know, knocking out socialism, right? So like the the argument that socialism is, is fundamentally flawed, right? Like we've all heard it, right? It's good in theory, but in practice, it never works. Well, then why why is it that the U.S. government has worked so very hard and spent so many millions upon billions, upon trillions of dollars to defeat governments that are democ- democratically elected and leftist oriented? Why? Why? Right? That's that's the that's the conundrum that you get stuck with. I think when you when you look at these events.
0: So that's when the. So I was reading here about the nineteen seventy three coup d'état, again aided by uh, the CIA, who apparently trained. Um, the Chilean paramilitary in uh, techniques of torture Um, they tortured I read here arrested 170,000 people in the three years after Mm -hmm. Pinochet took power Uh, tens of thousands of people were murdered or disappeared uh, in quotes love how they did that what do you think happened to them nobody knows maybe they were cutting to pieces uh, women's with women with their breasts cut off and all kinds of terrible, terrible things. Um, Historians said this is probably the worst time period in Chile um, to ever happen, uh, the, the years following um, Pinochet's rise um, to power. And that was one of the – so the Nixon administration, um, uh, I guess, used political um, support in ideology, propaganda, and um, the CIA to kind of create a, an environment uh, for the coup. To succeed, um, and I wrote here as I was researching for our podcast today, the U.S. feared um, a good example of a well-functioning socialist experiment, uh, mm-hmm. and not long after the coup d'etat, or not long um, yeah, after Fidel Castro visited um, the government uh, Allende in Chile for four weeks, uh, American observers and diplomats were worried about the Chilean way of socialism. So you see that yeah. frequently throughout all kinds of U.S. foreign policy. Fear, um, you know, paranoia. Um, of course, they, they, you know, there's a lot of um, disinformation and propaganda about, you know, socialism will never work. And they kind of, you know, the ruling class kind of, you know, um, dismisses it with contempt like oh socialism will never work I, i see elon musk tweet about it socialism has failed every time it's ever been tried well if they if they weren't worried about it and if they knew it was going to fail why are millions billions maybe even trillions of dollars spent on propaganda and military force to overthrow these experiments from succeeding um one of the things um that's still one of the leading um, foreign policy theories is the rot will spread. You know, uh, a rotten air, a rotten apple will spoil the entire barrel, and that was kind of literally mm-hmm. said. I believe. Um, I think it was. I'm not sure if it was. Um, if it was uh, Kissinger. I think it was Kissinger uh, that said the 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 uh, a rotten apple will spoil the whole barrel. If it's not him, it's one of his. You know. Uh, clones, but essentially um, in Vietnam, that's what the United States was worried about. Asia, um, you know, falling, Vietnam being the being threat of a good example, and it's spreading throughout mm-hmm. Asia. Um, so, what the United States did was it attacked not just North Vietnam, but South Vietnam, and it tried to mm-hmm. maintain and use violence to. Uh, uphold a puppet regime that was very unpopular that was set up there. So a lot of similarities. Again, I'll go back to the Mark Twain quote: um, "History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes." So let's get back to the 1973 coup uh, d'état 50th anniversary. Yes, uh, yesterday. What do you what do you think about all the um, things that happened there? And do you draw some similarities between um, this 9/11 and the 9/11 that happened in 2001?
1: Um, I, I don't, I mean, I, I certainly, you know, see the similarities in terms of attacks by a foreign power or a foreign entity on a nation. Sure. that it's similar in that realm, but just the, the design, um, and like you say, the, the fear of a, of a good example, right. And not just a good example, but the idea that unity with Fidel Castro, um, it was was frightening to the u.s uh because like you said there's the the apple spoiling the bunch or what was often referred to as the domino theory um That's it, the anyway. domino
0: theory yeah that was what i was looking for uh,
1: yeah. yeah no and and that was certainly well publicized right and it was vilified throughout the u.s there have been so many red scares um in and anti-anarchist uh propaganda as well a hundred percent all and Vanzetti, propaganda. i think
0: is that is yeah the, that was the, yeah that was an yep. anarchist that were wrongfully accused and i believe they got the sure. penalty i mean all, all this sort yep. of stuff happens um frequently throughout history just some of it gets talked about
1: right no uh, absolutely just like this event right the the event of in chile um you know not not well publicized not well explained although i i am kind of heartened to see that younger generations do have more awareness of stuff like that um and and that is encouraging um and i do think there will be a sea change when there's a slightly when the current <laughs> empowered generation right the boomers and stuff that even older folks who are still entrenched um kind of move on having younger thought involved. I, I do have uh, some hope for that time. Um, but it's just, you know, it, it's not just Chile. That's the, that's the point that I, I think is most important is like, just about every country in Latin America has been greatly affected, you know, and, and we were founded, some of our early founding documents, one of which is called the Monroe Doctrine, you know, is the concept of like, making sure that foreign powers, uh, you know, at the time referring to European powers of colonization stayed out of, um, of Latin America. Of yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. So, and then, and then we're okay with a clandestine approach to defeating communism. Right. So that was like the, the whole invention of that group is like the concept of, of protecting us business interests. So like I was, I forget what why I was talking about it with my wife very recently. You know, who she was an international relations major at St. Andrews in Scotland, right? She's oh wow, super, super. You know, up on world events like this. You know, but if you look at colonization and imperialism, it was done and uh, by many nations who have come over the last like fifty years. Uh, especially since World War II, like nations like France, the UK, Germany even, have come to the realization that enriching their population is a good investment, right? Like uh, universal healthcare systems that are free at the at the point of care is kind of a hallmark of those more quote-unquote developed nations of Europe. But they, they use kind of their colonization and their imperialism to enrich the country. There's certainly individuals who one out over others but um the us has has done their imperialism to the benefit of a, such a tiny fraction of people right like it doesn't benefit us and none of the taxpayers benefit from the massive investment we make in our foreign policy if anything it makes us more vulnerable to you know terrorism or whatever right like we're we're just like poking beehives anywhere where there's a beehive And we're, you know, just like toppling democratically elected governments that have an interest in the people, right? Like democratically elected leftist regimes that are going to eschew or kind of push off corporate power, especially internationalist corporate power. You know, that is our aim is to defeat governments that do that. Right. So it's like you can't make you can't even make. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, about about your point that the United States is creating terrorists because of their foreign policy, that's actually admitted to uh, by the CIA. I have a, uh, a uh, reading from an article here. I think it's named Michael Schuer, uh head of the CIA task force in tracking Bin Laden, who ended up concluding that the U.S. Um, the U.S. is Bin Laden's best ally because we're helping him in the goal of mobilizing muslim world around the fear that the u.s is attacking islam and carrying out a crusade and they have to defend themselves so we're actually admitting to it that our foreign policy decisions are creating terrorists around the globe let me go ahead and read here so let's go back to the 1973 um 9-11 the first 9-11 and then maybe we'll get into some more modern uh 9-11 and its implications i got uh 9-11, a book here written by Chomsky. Uh, Was there an alternative? Of course there was. Um, Maybe we can talk about some of those. Uh, I have here, though, uh, from another book here I'm reading from, just pulled it out, was not even preparing. uh, Prevailing Orthodoxy, um, talking about U.S. foreign policy, I have Lars Schultz, the leading academic specialist on human rights in Latin America, found that U.S. aid has tended to flow disproportionately to Latin American governments which torture their citizens. To the hemisphere's relatively egregious violators of fundamental human rights. <laughs> How about that for foreign policy? And then they get on. They go on to in this book here. This is a Chomsky book, but he quotes a lot of uh, experts on U.S. foreign policy. They get on. They kind of go on to say that the U.S. doesn't necessarily like torture. It doesn't necessarily um, fund governments that um, embark or partake in torture. But what they do is invest in governments that create um, a better economic climate for foreign investment. Uh, that's exactly yeah. what the Pinochet government did, privatized the banking industry, sold off all the natural resources and the public companies there, uh, essentially opening up Chile for U.S. business. Um, and that's what it does. It, 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 and that's what Chile did um, by smashing up the resistance movements, smashing up the leftist movements um outlawing political movements and organizing in Chile, uh, using torture, um, targeting workers, targeting resistance movements, targeting the youth, targeting students. Um, actually was, I was waiting for you to get on the podcast. I watched a couple of videos. Again, I'm going back to the Reddit um, Chomsky Forum, which is a lot of good stuff on there. Not all great stuff, but a lot of good posts. And I saw a video posted by Jeremy Corbyn uh, who I guess he's maybe like a Bernie Sanders of Britain, um, but he had a good kind of video and, and oh, interviewed.
1: He's, he's even he's even cooler than Bernie, but he's a really really cool guy. Yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, he just had some interviews with some people that were, um, you know, experienced the 1973 terror uh, campaign and the Pinochet government um and what happened and it was just terrifying but yeah i think he's doing a great job we talked about education um he's using his platform to educate you know to to mention make mention of the fact that uh not only the united states was involved but britain was too in the pinochet um as a lot of times you know britain is uh the u.s's lieutenant and our attack dog same with israel um and that's why i guess as as i mentioned earlier trying to set up some you know kind of security alliance between saudi arabia um, and the Arab facade that is that, um, you know, essentially royal family that runs the country that is a human rights um, nightmare. Um, but, you know, making mention, again, Jeremy Corbyn of uh, Britain's involvement using, Kipinochet uh, used, I guess, the coup d'etat and the military junta there, or using British planes and British supplies to in their reign of terror. Um, you know, it happened 50 years ago, but it's still not well talked about. It's still not, very it's not in the public consciousness so we need people like jeremy Corbyn who has millions of followers and a a big platform to to spread knowledge and to to spread education and to try to wake up some people about um you know what our government and britain's government was doing uh, foreign policy wise and what happened in the first um 9-11 and also maybe the seeds of the 9-11 in 2001 and what happened we have to kind of we have to kind of understand, and this is even admitted to, again, by the CIA, United States foreign policy is creating terrorists and terrorist cells. Um, there's a lot of people, um, you know, in the Arab world that do not like the United States. And it's not because they hate us and certainly not because they hate our freedoms. As George Bush once said, they hate our policies.
1: Yeah. No, they hate our, our unilateral support for Israel. Um you know, that has turned into essentially apartheid for Palestinians, right? So it's really interesting that you bring up Jeremy Corbyn, um, who was kind of running as a leftist voice uh, for prime minister and then got so popular because of how reasonable he was and how honest he was about the effects of the 2008 financial crash on – individual workers and how he was in favor of nationalizing the railways, renationalizing the railways that had been previously under collective public ownership. Um, but it was his support for Palestinian rights and his, his, uh, you know, his honesty um, from a public platform as an MP, you know, a member of parliament elected from a, a group of people over a long period of time. He was, uh, you know, a very good politician in the sense that he went to, you know, parliament with his people's interests in mind and fought for them all the time, but it was his, uh, temerity. It was his, his bravery and speaking out against the UK and the U S role in supporting Israel in some really horrific human rights abuses after land theft, after land grabs, um, you know, over the course of a, a number of decades where they just took land from neighboring countries, um, you know, it, it, that was what, what caused him to lose his chance at winning the prime ministership. Like he, it was Keir Starmer, kind of a real corporate, like a very Biden-esque, yeah, although a younger. Type, a Biden kind yeah. of type,
0: maybe a Hillary Clinton, yeah. uh, you know, that, yeah. that kind of type, yeah.
1: Yeah, he, so he won, and it was because the Israel lobby, the, the, the lobby of um, of people in the UK who cared about U- the UK's protection, you know, basically Zionists, right, who who wanted to make sure that Israel remained under Jewish control, and only Jewish control, who paid for a, a smear campaign that smeared Jeremy Corbyn as an anti-Semite, you know, it, w- for, it was just... Simply criticizing
0: uh, the policies and the human rights abuses of the Israeli government, not... Not the people mm-hmm. of Israel, not the religion, no. but the egregious no. crimes committed by Israel that are enabled by Britain and the United States.
1: No, he was known by his constituency as being respectful of every single religion that was in his uh, constituency to the point where he met with faith leaders from every, you know, you name it. He was he was respectful of and attentive to the needs of those communities. Um, so it was completely unfounded, right? It, it was just an example, right, of, of being honest and what that does uh, on, on the world stage, but especially in countries like the U.K. and the U.S., who, you know, you make a great point with the, the U.K. serving ever since, you know, the War of 1812 and U.S. ascendancy and, and British kind of leveling off and then decline of empire um, has served as kind of a lapdog.
0: Yeah, um, I guess uh, U.S. Even... after World War II kind of took over the British empire formally.
1: Yeah, um, because of the fact that, that war was not fought on U.S. soil, and the U.S. Uh, you know role in the world economy had grown so much, and the birth of petrodollars—the idea of the the dollarization of the economy—is absolutely fundamental to U.S. you know hegemonic control over the U.S. Uh, over the world economy for so long. No, nah, I mean, like, so basically, the last thing I wanted to say on that was that um our our very first episode of our new podcast um we'll we'll cover that so i next time i'm on hopefully we'll be ready to launch a couple of the episodes we're going to try to bank a bunch before we put them out um but yeah we want to focus on that and i think my co-host is a a better explainer of um you know world economic forces and and the banking industry and uh, a lot of that stuff. So I, I will kind of save that uh, and kind of reference your listeners to my future podcast that will delve into that a little bit more. It's, it's not fully in my wheelhouse um, as much as other things that we've talked about.
0: But the, the oil, so it's an oil-based economy it um, has been for quite some time since the early 1900s. I had a Nate Went. he's a labor activist, uh the electric motor was um invented before the combustion engine. Uh mm-hmm. suburbs, um this was a uh basically a social engineering project. Um the defense highways, which are created by um oil-based products, um mm-hmm. are subsidized um by the taxpayers, these cars would be completely useless. So it was basically a social engineering project, a huge one mm-hmm. after um, World War II, to essentially put us in um, suburbs, um, to spread us out, to get rid of um, – we had we had rail. We had rail systems. Mm-hmm. They were very prevalent um, you know, in the uh, 20th century, um, 19th century, um, and they were all kind of – now I guess the majority of U.S. Rail- railways are privatized freight. We almost yep. have no – Um, you know, community or public transportation via the rail system. We do not have high speed rail, at least certainly not much, if any. Um, And uh, yeah, essentially, you know, we pay these big auto and these oil cartels, a huge um, subsidy in terms of, um, you know, Prime, or I'm sorry, publicly funding the roadways, which again, these cars would be completely useless without them. And the mm-hmm. oil economy works because these oil companies are highly subsidized by the U.S. And I'm sure BP, and based in Britain, British Petroleum Company, highly subsidized by Britain, uh, as most of these transnational corporations are very highly mm-hmm. subsidized and protected in their home country. And that's because we don't want the price of oil, it's very... It's, it's, it's highly manipulated, but you don't want it to go too high because that's going to decrease demand. People will drive less, but we also don't want it to go too low because that's going to cut in on the profits of these oil cartels and that's kind of our alliance with Saudi Arabia. We allow this Arab facade and this royal family to essentially run this country uh, that has a terrible um, right human rights record. and that's one and one reason of this and they talked about the um, Arab facade before the. US took over in the region when Britain was running it. basically uh, the United States now tolerates religious extremism in the Middle East. Uh, in the Arab world, because the greater threat would be an eco- independent economic development in the Middle East, in countries kind of, um, you know, c- taking control of their own natural resources. We empower um, these um, essentially cartel families, these royal families, to run the region just as long as the money flows back to the West into U.S. and Europe-based banks. So um yeah, I mean the, the
1: one one thing I do do want to highlight there uh, as we're seeing electric cars becoming available and becoming more you know kind of market uh, competitive and actually like putting out some cool products is the fact that we could have gone electric like you're saying you know it was invented before the internal combustion engine Um, and it just makes so much more sense, right? So like some of my friends who are engineers have explained to me, like the the simplicity involved in an electric engine versus like the really complex task of figuring out how to contain combustion to drive pistons. You know, it's, it's actually a feat of engineering that they put it together, but it was done, you know, like, as you pointed out purposely to enrich and to continue enriching the oil companies, um, you know, and just another part of that is also it's important to realize that plastic is a byproduct of the petroleum production process. And so, you know, we've gone to a world of plastics and, you know, certainly there are plastics that have improved quality of life in some ways. But uh, as a net product, um, you know, we have islands of it in the Pacific, um, you know, the Great Pacific garbage patch is, is primarily plastics and microplastics are going to be in our environment for a very very long time. Uh, it's, it's it's just yeah. unfortunate, yeah.
0: I read that the average person consumes uh, a credit card sized uh piece of microplastics every year something along those lines. Every single person consumes that on average. Yeah. Uh, I, I did want to say, like, I'm all for mass public transportation and high-speed rail. Uh, I think electric cars are fine, um, but that's also putting, um, you know, responsibility. That's just like reforming capitalism, making a more benign form of capitalism, yeah. maybe less pollution. That would be good. Uh, that's only though less pollution if we aren't using fossil fuel energy yeah. plants to power and charge these cars. Um, if, if we're, we're using wind energy and renewable energy, okay, that's fine. Um, but I would much rather have um, renewable energies uh, powering um, p- public mass transportation like high-speed rail. That would be my preference. Uh, I don't think uh, electric cars are going to solve this problem of capitalism. Uh, well, no, it's just, and I you think- know, individual consumerism again.
1: <laughs> the answer also lies in, in local organization, right, and in, in figuring out how to farm your food locally if whenever possible, how to organize locally. And why? Why do we need to travel so far? Right. Like, just like get a bike and just do your thing. You know, it's like it's not necessary. I was just I was thinking about it on my bike ride home from work today. Like I I, I teach 10 miles away from home. I'm able to ride my bike. I'm lucky in the sense that I can do that. And that I have developed the instincts over time to to stay safe doing that. But I was thinking about, like, why are all these cars on the road? It's like so pointless. Right. Going to jobs that they hate. You know, just to pay bills that they they have to pay because they have to pay them because capitalism doesn't function without the consumer side of it, right? It's just so insidious and omnipresent, and it just strikes me as like, why couldn't we simplify and and live on the local scale? You know, just it's unfortunate that we that we've gone the way we have.
0: Yeah, so again, after World War II, um, a massive social engineering project spreads us out, putting us in suburbs, you know, a small patch of land that we have to manicure instead of, you know, compost or, you know, getting rid of the environment, destroying the environment, uh, eliminating biodiversity. All these things were social engineering projects. When I think maybe it would have been a lot better if we were more concentrated into more urban cities uh, where we can Mm -hmm. bike places, walk places, public transportation, instead of the need to drive. I've had jobs where I had you know, drive 30 miles each way. That's Mm -hmm. ridiculous. But under capitalism, that's not all that far outside the norm. So if we actually had centrally planned, I don't love the centralization stuff, but if we actually sat down with a large group of people in cities and planned it out, like, hey, maybe this area will be where shopping will be. This will be residential. This is where our stops are going to be so we can kind of take trains and mass transportation. Instead, we just urban sprawl and just kept spreading out and spreading out. And, you know, now we just have a whole country, it seems like, when you drive out there of shopping malls, um, you know, asphalt, uh, you know, uh, you got your you got your chain. Restaurants like your Chili's and your Applebee's, uh, one every five miles. I don't even know. I mean, if I drove around here, I'm um, in Texas, a Whataburger and a McDonald's and a Burger King. I don't yeah. know how about how many I would pass in ten miles? Certainly, a number of them. Uh, and that's not yeah, necessarily the, the how the would...
1: poisons. The poisons of capitalism, right? Like just like the hyper-capitalist poison that you can put in your body.
0: But yeah, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Like too much time left. We got like thirty minutes. I really want to focus on our last 30 minutes with nine eleven and the seeds of it. I'm going to go back to 1958. Internal planning documents during the Eisenhower administration raised the question. This is back in 1958. The same question in the Middle East is out there today. Why is there a campaign of hatred against the U.S. in the Arab world, in the Muslim world? This is 1958. Uh, National uh, Security Council released a study, uh, and this was now, um, you know, came out as uh, – Public knowledge now is released, um, freedom of information, uh, declassified. There's a perception in the Arab world, this is internal documents, Eisenhower administration, we're talking 1950s now. That there's a perception in the Arab world that the U.S. supports harsh and oppressive dictatorships. And the U.S. blocks democracy and development. And it's we do it because we want to keep control of the energy resources within the region. that's true. (laughs) Oh, that's true. So this was all known to U.S. planners after World War II in the 1950s, and yet the same U.S. foreign policy decisions still seem to um, be prevalent in the way um, that we kind of control the Middle East oil supply and the way that we prop up these puppet regimes like Saudi Arabia and these countries that we um, essentially give um, protection and security forces to. Uh, Saudi Arabia is a huge consumer of u.s weapons uh there's also in that article that what i mentioned before uh the alliance between israel and saudi arabia um the people that are um lobbying for this uh uh uh, alliance are like raytheon written article it says like raytheon lockheed martin all -hmm. these defense contractors so they want uh you know they want a middle east run by force um Mm -hmm where you know these human rights regimes keep their populations under control um with violence and force and they have billions of dollars to spend on weapons um to Mm -hmm. kind of use to to keep the population under control that sounds a lot like the pinochet chilean um Mm -hmm. government doesn't it so i I see a lot of similarities between the first 9-11 and the second 9-11 what do you think
1: no no that's a good point um yeah, and, and how the, the US policies um, you know, create terror, uh and create a reaction, right? Like it's it's only it only makes sense that there'd be a reaction, right? And um yeah, it is uh it's shocking to see that, you know, if you ask people when they're talking about nine eleven, if you ask people like, you know, first of all if they know where bin Laden got his early funding right from the US government um or or why there might be anger at the US they just can't they just can't grasp it right they can't maybe maybe they can some of them and they just haven't or then haven't been presented with the idea but like you know it it's not coming out of nowhere right it, there's never you know a reaction like that 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 comes out of nowhere and i think that's you know, important, and I think you know a, a Marxist approach to understanding that and looking at it with dialectical materialism would would certainly, you know, yield the same idea of looking at it from multiple perspectives and trying to understand kind of uh, two sides of it. Um, it. It is it's it's disappointing to talk to uh, the average, uh, you know, gung ho U.S. supporter about critical questions like that um and it's also really interesting for me to talk to family members you know who consider themselves liberals some of them with experience in the u.s military um, and to hear their kind of justifications for it when you when you ask them and try to kind of like get at what i consider the the central concepts of it right like the, the. the degradation, the, the hatred and the land theft of a, a group of people, right? Or, you know, uh, you know whatever part of it you want to parse out and ask about, it's, it's, it's disappointing to see the lack of depth um, that, that other people in the U.S. And I think our media like gives permission to this kind of U.S.-centric view of just about any issue. Um, We don't have a free
0: press in the United States. Of course we don't. Right. We used to have a working class press, but that was all kind of, uh, you know, I think at the turn of the century, that was all bought up and smashed up by the, uh, you know, the anti, um, by the establishment, essentially the anti-worker movements, those sorts of stuff, um, the red scares, all that kind of stuff smashed up the presses, creating a a corporate press um, that presents a very, um, a very specific kind of world to us, one that is run by big business and wealth and manufactured once and consumerism and all the rest of it. Uh, I want to go here. I want to compare and contrast a little bit here. I want to stay on 9-11 for the rest of this um, pod today. I just want to talk about, though, um, December 7th, 1941, FDR, I think, said, a day that will live in infamy. I, uh, I guess he was maybe the farthest or most progressive president of the United States. Uh, I don't want, this is not an FDR podcast, but um, I don't think the, the new deal went far enough, but um, you know, it was a start for sure. And of course the right has been trying to tear down new deal policies since es- essentially they've been instituted. Um, but the death toll on that day was 2,403 people after that. Uh, and this was a colony that the United States, not the U S mainland. This was a colony that the U S essentially took from Hawaii at gunpoint so this yeah. was not the U.S. mainland. This was a military installment on Hawaii yeah. that the Japanese targeted, killing uh, 2,403 mostly Navy personnel and servicemen. The United States, after that, unleashed a total war on Japan, firebombing campaigns, killing hundreds of thousands of people, two nuclear bombs, killing yeah. tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds and maybe even millions of people with the radiation and effects after it. So yeah. I'm not trying to equate the 24- Uh, 2,403 people to um, 9-11, or what the United States did, but surely there was an escalation of violence from the United States from what happened in Pearl Harbor when Japan targeted um, a, uh, again, U.S. military installment. So let's go here to 9-11. When the total people died on 9-11 was 2,966, excluding... um, The people that committed that violent act, the extremists um, of the Muslim community that were not supported by most groups within the um, Middle East. Uh, This was just a small sect of very violent religious extremists. Certainly, um, they could have gotten radicalized by U.S. foreign policy, I'm sure that many of them did um, during the U.S.'s um, campaign in the Middle East since World War II. Uh, But when you just talk about the victims, I guess that was 2,977, which was about the number of people that died uh, from hunger in the 10 years of sanctions leading up to the war in Iraq. And if you want to go to the total um, 20-year war on terror, uh, Brown University estimated that the 20-year war on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq um, cost U.S. taxpayers $8 trillion dollars and also accounted for about 900,000 deaths. I um, also make mention here that deaths and casualties are not well investigated um, by the United States. People in power rarely investigate their own crimes, and we have a very um, subservient press and intelligentsia uh, in the United States, so they are subservient to U.S. power. So they don't even talk much and nor or make mention of U.S. crimes. However, you know, when it's Russian crimes... We're going to laser-like focus analyze the crimes committed right now in Ukraine and Putin, um, probably down to the very last infant child killed and woman killed. Um, But again, these figures in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're rounded up. So I actually have a rounding here. Um, Let's see here. In Iraq, estimated around 300,000, 182,272 to 295,000 People, give or take, um, which is the the error or the 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 the, the range that they're giving here uh, is over ten thousand people. That would be five times as many killed um, in the 9-11 terrorist um, act. So we don't even know. We can't even do it within five standard deviations of uh, how many people were killed. Um, so obviously, there was a great escalation. Of violence. I um, also want to talk about um, just the, the, the policies essentially um, in the Middle East. Um, we essentially used um, a, a bin Laden tactic. So, what we did was basically a reaction to the 9 11 attacks by violently lashing out right out of the Osama bin Laden playbook. Um, the invasion of Iraq. Gave a big shot in the arm to the jihadi extremist movement. Um, and essentially, uh, the the Taliban, I believe, were even um, open to um, having a trial for Osama bin Laden for his uh, role in the 9-11 attacks. But the U.S. dismissed that. They did not want a fair trial. They did not want to use um, the court system. Uh, The United States um, does not ask for permission to invade, it invades. So what the United States did with Bin Laden was was rejected um, the trial for Bin Laden, and what they did was uh, invaded, and what they did was essentially um, assassinate um, Bin Laden, a group of Navy SEALs, captured him. Uh, He was unarmed with his wife, killed, and his body was dumped in the ocean. So, um, you know, there was basically no use of law or legal means. Um, Yeah, basically, uh, yeah, an elite team of Navy SEALs um, the, bin Laden was defenseless. His body was dumped in the sea. And there's lots of speculation surrounding the event. So, uh, and then I, I have here on the Nuremberg trials Chief Justice Roberts and obviously Pinochet. Executed a lot of people without trial, jailed a lot of people without trial. I see some similarities there. The Nazis did too. Uh, this is Justice Robert Jackson on handing out the defendant on handing the defendants at Nuremberg who were Nazis a poisoned chalice, and he said, "If we were ever to sip from it and commit such crimes of aggression, major crimes, we must suffer the same punishment." So, again, I I see a lot of similarities from the Pinochet regime, from the fascists and the crimes that were committed in Nazi Germany and Europe during World War II, uh, and certainly out of the bin Laden playbook, um, basically use of force and violence um, without any international means. And that same use of force and violence was used to target bin Laden and assassinate him without trial or without even charges.
1: Oh, I mean, yeah, 100%. Um, And I mean, I think it's also important to understand, like, first of all, the Brown University numbers, you know, are are absolutely good to use and good to share. Um, But I think the cost
0: of war study, I believe, from Brown University, I've gotten some good stuff from that.
1: Yeah, I I do think it's conservative in its estimate of the number of people who died within Iraq um, as a result of, not just the sanctions, but uh, especially the war. Um, But that's not even relevant really to the topic so much as uh, I do also want it to be, you know, just at least brought up the the number of people who have died as a result of capitalism. Right. So like the concept that our food and our housing um, and our healthcare are commodified has led to (laughs) the death or long term suffering or, or the desperation of, of countless, uh, countless individuals in the world. Um, so I think that needs to be known as well, you know, in the end the violence inherent in that. Um, but no, you make good points in, in drawing those parallels. You know, I think um, the common thread, right, is the corp- corporate control, right, and the corporate interest uh, kind of leading the way, it, you know, as a hallmark of fascism, is that partnership Um, And kind of like the decision making coming from corporations a lot of times uh, and making things kind of perfect, uh, making the environment perfect for corporations to operate uh, at their whim, right, and and do things regardless of the harm that they are doing to the people and to the land. Um, It it is certainly a a common thread uh, throughout those as well.
0: Yeah, I want to go back to what I said in Latin America, Lars Schultz, um, about basically terrorism seems to correlate with a good investment climate, and which is why the United States seemingly tends to um, give more aid to countries that terrorize their citizens. And obviously the Chilean government got a lot of USAID in their support of the Pinochet dictatorship.
1: Yeah, I mean, terrorism and and consumerism are are both ways to individualize and to break apart communal groups, uh, communal living, you know, um, a a big part of indigenous culture in Latin America and and, uh, West African culture, which was spread through, uh, you know, slaves who then often formed maroon colonies, um, like the island of Belize was a maroon colony. entirely escaped slaves who had set up their own living, you know, their own entire nation essentially at the time, you know, is communal living, is, is communal sharing of resources, especially the land, um, communal parenting. Uh, you know, you, you've mentioned primitive communism, but like, this is like really essential stuff to a lot of societies and, and capitalism and in use the use of terror, the use of force, Um, And the desperation that you can breed through consumerism and the commodification of your living resources like your land, your food, your water, in many cases, and your housing, you know, it's just going to create the the perfect situation for corporations to exploit workers by paying them less than their way, way less than their fair share of wages. Um, and also making them dependent upon the consumer culture and, uh, you know, participating in the economy out of desperation.
0: Speaking yeah. of desperation, um, I'm reading here in an article, uh, Afghanistan has the highest number of people facing severe levels of hunger. Obviously oh, we spent 20 years so there. Bad. It's so sad. Uh, yeah, yeah. 20 years we spent there trying to replace the Taliban, um, with a puppet regime, and essentially, we replaced it trillions of dollars later, the Taliban with the Taliban. Right now, there are uh, 6.6 million people living in or near hunger um, in Afghanistan, food insecure. Um, think about hunger. It's not a quick death. You can live for weeks and months Ugh. off of Ugh. grasses and roots and tree bark. Um, it's ugly. Um, at the same time, I think we're withholding and freezing $50 uh, billion in Afghan assets. Mm-hmm. We should not be freezing Afghan assets. In fact, we should give them their assets. They, it's their money. And we should be paying the, those people reparations. Uh, I want to get back to terrorism uh, again on the almost day after the 50-year First 9-11. Terrorism, so I read the definition earlier. Terrorism, at least according to U.S. state planners and leadership and the ruling class, is essentially violence. Violence committed against the United States or one of our allies that we don't agree with or we don't support. That's it. That's the only difference between what the United States does and what we deem terrorism. Um, Mm -hmm. If you if the United States was serious about ending terrorism, it would start in Washington, D.C., and especially in the offices uh, of in the air conditioned offices of the people, uh, I think, trying to plan these, um, you know, uh, these military uh, campaigns all over the world, toppling leftist governments and regimes that we are. Uh, targeting and not in favor of. Um, terrorism is often said to be a weapon of the weak, but that is false. It's a tactic of the strong and the powerful. Um, the U.S. doesn't get terrorists c- to commit its crimes on its behalf. It employs terrorist states. Um, the world is run by force, and the U.S. is also the number one arms uh, dealer in the world, um, the most violent state in the world. I have here, I'm going back to the U.S. Army Manual, the definition of low-intensity warfare here. It's uh, warfare below conventional war, um, often uh, putting states against non-state groups. Uh, and these low-intensity conflicts range from subversion to use of armed forces, waged by a combination of means employing political, economic, informational, and military instruments, low intensity conflict localized generally in the third third world uh, and within the region and having global security implications. Um, Basically that is low intensity warfare. The way I read that that's terrorism. (laughs) That's just the terrorism that we employ. um, And when we deem it to be appropriate or legitimate and the terrorism that say, Oh, I don't know. Uh, Russia's committing, I guess it's more, uh, it's, it's a war crime than it is terrorism. But uh, one of our enemies, you know, what they do, um, if we don't agree with it, we call it terrorism. And what we do, we call it low-intensity warfare.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I, I would make sure that we mention what I mentioned before, the School of the Americas. And, you know, not just the School of the Americas in Fort Benning, Georgia, but U.S. historic uh, training of paramilitary forces that have, cre- you know, committed some horrendous atrocities. Um, and also, you know, there there was another point I wanted to make there in terms of uh, the low-intensity warfare and kind of just the... So it, not just that, right? Those are all good points and all very, you know, kind of present in U.S. foreign policy. But it's also the... Uh, the fact that U.S. sanctions are are, are almost always leveled, uh, you know, essentially felt by workers and poor uh, in the countries where those sanctions are, are put in place. Um, and and so that
0: creates vulnerable population that empowers the dictator. So yeah. typically sanctions almost never work, and it actually makes yeah. people more desperate and making the dictator or the target government even more powerful.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it, it absolutely is an act of terror. Even austerity measures in the U.S., I feel, uh, I, they feel like terror to me, right? So, like, you go through the the pandemic with um, an earned income tax credit that it does about 50%. It, it, it boosts, it lifts 50% of children in poverty in the U.S. out of poverty for the time that it's in place. Just letting that expire is... Like, it's horrible. Like how funny you should mention it?
0: that. I just right. uh yeah, I just um uh tweeted that. I'm looking for the um the tweet right now. Okay, yeah, so child poverty this is this Nina Turner quoting her tweet. Child mm-hmm. child poverty rose from an all time high of five all time low, excuse me, of five point two percent in two thousand twenty one to twelve point four percent in 2022, I have another one here um, that, uh, let's see here. Uh, okay, here we go. Under Joe Biden, child poverty, this is holding Biden accountable from the left. Under under Joe Biden, child poverty is now skyrocketed 139%, the largest single increase in history over the last year. How about that?
1: Yeah, and I, I think a whole lot of that is the ex- expiration of the Congress, right? Of, yeah, of the child yeah, tax. No no, yeah. no, no, it's also it's also the inflationary pressures, right? Sure. The inflation is enormous, and it it is so driven by corporate greed, um, you know. That again, it just it just proves that like, we're in a really desperate state that is thriving on that desperation, right? So, like, that is for how inflation,
0: pre-inflation...
1: Yeah, I mean, and and, and the, the hopeful part of this is that we are seeing an absolute sea change in the public support for unions, and then union success at the negotiating table has been huge. Right, we're fighting and, back
0: in this one-sided and, class war. Workers are fighting back right now. Unprecedented number of worker mobilizations and organizing efforts. I told you uh, earlier in the podcast I had Nate Went on. Uh, he's a worker and. Uh, union activists, and he said, "We're in an unprecedented time for unionization in America. That's a great thing. love hearing that."
1: Oh yeah, I mean the growth of organic unions. I was just talking to my cousin this summer, who uh, told me at one point he had been a kind of feeling against unions because of a difficult experience he had while working at a college uh, in his state. But he is—he you know, went from being a paramedic to now he's a nurse. And he said that he and all the nurses in, in his hospital voted like two years ago to form a union. And he's like, it's the best decision we made. We made it together. We made it collectively as a group of workers. And um, it's just been so good to see how, how much solidarity it's built by joining forces, right? It's just every time it happens, it just reinforces the idea that this makes sense in the sea tide of corporate power. Uh, in a place where we look to our government and our, we see that our government is not really willing to help us. it's not gonna help us. Um, it's gonna be upon us, right and so that's why the two pieces of of hope I take out of this is the the number of worker cooperatives, you know the worker owned worker operated um democratically controlled worker workplaces um and then second the the union membership uh, and the formation of organic you know, uh democratically elected unions within worker groups like Starbucks is you know, you name it though. It's it's not localized to any one or one company that they're trying to unionize within. Um and then the the size of the worker gains. Uh, UPS contract negotiations were not an absolute win for workers, but they were huge. Um they knocked not the teamsters I believe, right? That's the yeah teamsters. the Teamsters yeah. Teamsters are really powerful and and you know, well-mobilized union. Not um, not as
0: powerful as they used to be, but I think they can make you know, a comeback.
1: Yeah. And, and you know, you see, you've seen other union wins at 20 to 30% pay raises um, or teacher wildcat strikes in the South where, you know, you never used to see that and, and they're winning, right? Like, it's the winds, the winds piling upon winds shows that the the workers are ready, right. Workers are seeing that this is not gonna work out well for us unless we join together and make it clear what we need uh, and what we will, will not operate with uh, unless we win. you know so um that those are the two pieces that do make me hopeful at this stage.
0: You said something about the sea tide. I mean, uh, unions raise what – what's the expression? I'm terrible these expressions. A rising tide, lifts all ships, something like that. But, yeah, uh, yeah unions improve working conditions for everyone, even non-members, mm-hmm. improve wages – uh, improve worker safety. Um, you know, improve benefits, uh, more time off. So unions have a ripple effect for even non-members and people that are, aren't in it. it. Has a ripple effect for if one union uh, or one workplace unionizes in the in the town or the city or the local community, that's going to improve conditions for the um, business down the street, who might also um, see it and use it as an example to unionize theirs, or even if they don't. Um, you know, the, the place that has the union is probably going to get better wages, better benefits, and that other workplace, even if they don't unionize is going to have to compete with them, improving conditions for everyone.
1: Yeah. And teacher unions, I like to point out as I'm active in my own teacher union, um, is we are always fighting for students, right? So the, the things that are better for teachers are going to be better for students. We want better, like physical facilities. We want. Um, with smaller class sizes, like we we've said it. You know, they try to think of all these solutions for education, and we're gonna have to do it on another podcast to really talk about education <laughs> to yeah. the fullest.
0: And we got um, a couple more scheduled, my man, so that's good.
1: Yeah, another episode would definitely we'd be able to flesh this out. But the, but the point is, teachers unions fight for students. Like we want the best thing for our students. We're we're at the negotiating table with our paraprofessionals, like our you know our the guys, the folks who work with us. who are often called teacher's aides or what, what have you. Um, and it's our students and we're fighting for all of it. Like it's, it's, we all win together. We don't win ever by dividing, you know, it's never going to work by, by breaking us apart. We join and we fight together. Um, so that's, that's, that's what what I'm standing (laughs) for here.
0: Creating better working conditions for teachers that should improve the overall learning environment for students, right? Just makes sense to me. seems intuitive.
1: You just can't attract good teachers also without the, the protections that we've won as unions, right? Like you, you wouldn't have the educated and kind of very capable workforce of teachers that you, that you have without the protections uh, that we've won and the pay, the pay scales that would not exist if we hadn't been fighting for them as a union for a long time.
0: It's getting late for both of us right now. It looks like we got less than a minute here. Are we going to, we going to wrap it up or are we going to get one more?
1: No, I got to I got to wrap it up. I got to be at school early. You got in, uh,
0: but... 40 seconds. Any, this okay. Uh, 40 seconds, whatever you want to plug, we'll cut it off and we'll do this again. We already got some more lined up. So excellent. Appreciate your time. Go ahead. Now 30 seconds as I was blabbering. Go ahead. 30 seconds.
1: Yeah, no problem. So trickle down socialism is a podcast. I think it's a clever name. It's also got a a compendium of good leftist uh, interviews um, and stay tuned. I'll be back on this show, which I enjoy listening to and I enjoy participating in. And I will hopefully be ready to start talking about our new project next time on podcast so stick with mc squared for now uh check out my work if you're looking for more trickle down socialism wherever you get your podcast
0: thank you for listening to necessary illusions i also want to thank my special guest pat tds for part two hat of trickle-down socialism, of course, and we had a great discussion tonight on the first 9-11, as well as the American 9-11. We also discussed U.S. foreign policy, along with many other topics. Again, I am your host, MC Squared, no gods, no masters, I'm out. Oh, oh, oh,